Today we're going to be finishing Acts chapter 9. We've got two stories to get into. They're both pretty short, but they both teach a really good lesson. So we're going to read verses 32 through 35, Acts chapter 9. And then we're going to see what the Spirit has to say to the church. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, so we're, we're leaving Paul in Tarsus for a little while. We'll come back to him later. But as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. So we had a little detour in the beginning of chapter 9 where we saw the conversion of Saul, who had become the Apostle Paul. But before that, we had seen that Philip, you remember, had come from Samaria, had encountered the Ethiopian eunuch, led him to the Lord, baptized him, and the Spirit snatched him up and dropped him off in Azotus, which was the old Philistine city-state Ashdod. And he began to preach his way, you remember, up unto Caesarea. And now that the persecution has died down, we saw that in the last couple verses here, Peter is going behind Philip and checking in on all of these congregations, similar to how he had gone to Samaria and had prayed for them there. And he comes first to the city of Lydda. And the other one is going to be Joppa that we're going to talk about. This is on the coastal plain of Sharon, or Sharon would be how you'd probably pronounce it correctly, but we'll just say Sharon because that's what we're used to. The city of Lydda. If you read in the Old Testament, you're not going to find a city called Lydda. You will find one called Lod, L-O-D. And it was built by the sons of Ehud, which I could talk about Ehud all day. Any, any opportunity I get, he was the, the judge who was the descendant from Caleb, the left-handed assassin who killed Eglon, the fat king. You remember that story? And led Israel to a great victory. Really cool. Well, his, his descendants, according to 1 Chronicles 8.12, settled the city of Lydda, or Lod, in the Old Testament. It was 25 miles northeast of Jerusalem. Still pretty close. You see how it's still staying within the Promised Land here. And it was a crossroad city. You had a road that went from Damascus to Egypt, and you had a road that went from Jerusalem up to Joppa. And in the middle, you had the city of Lydda. In AD 66, so this is still decades away from our story, the Jews were revolting against Rome. Rome had marched through on their way to Jerusalem, and while all the Jews were away at the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, the city would be totally destroyed and sacked. But for now, that has not happened yet. And it's very cool. I, I could talk about this a lot more than I, than I will today, but in verse 32 as well as verse 41, you see that the church in Lydda, the church in Joppa, is referred to as the saints. That's pretty cool. Bible calls you a saint. Saint is not a special category of Christian. Later on in church history, we would divide between the regular people and then the saints with a capital S. But in the Bible, it calls us all saints. The Bible tells us that we are called to be numbered among the saints. Isn't that wonderful? The Lord has already set you aside as holy. It's not something that you have to earn for yourself. And Peter is going around and visiting all these saints. And he meets this man named Aeneas bedridden for eight years. It does not say if this was his conversion moment. You kind of get the vibe that he was a believer. He was among the church. But either way, he's healed at a word from the apostle. Doesn't give us any other details, but Aeneas was there eight years, bedridden. Maybe they were having church in his room because he couldn't go anywhere. And Peter sees him and he says, Aeneas, 
Jesus Christ heals you. Stand up and make your bed. Isn't that cool? Now, I have expressed before, when we were going through Luke and as we were going through Acts, that it is sometimes frustrating to me that we read stories about healing and miracles in the Bible, and we immediately spiritualize them and make them about something else, right? You read a story about paralysis and immediately becomes a study about depression, okay? That's appropriate, and those are good images and illustrations, but I want to focus, at least for this story, on what it's about, which is healing. There's a lot of healing going on in the book of Acts. There was a lot of healing going on in the Gospels. And in fact, you can see the similarities here between what Peter says and what Jesus said. Jesus said that to several people, didn't he? Pick up your bed and walk. He said it to the man at the pool of Bethesda. He said it to the man who... They ripped up the roof and lowered him down, remember? And he said, pick up your bed and walk so that some of these people can sit down, you know? <laughs> and Peter's doing the same thing. Why do I draw that out? Because we saw in the book of Acts, the very, very beginning, he referred to the gospel of Luke as all the things that Jesus began to do and to say. Even though the book of Luke ends with the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. In the book of Acts, we've got another 28 chapters, which is the continuation of everything Jesus did and said, except now he's doing it through his church. Is it appropriate for us to say that the life of Jesus is an example for how we are to live? Of course, the answer is yes, right? We say that all the time. We want to be more like Jesus. But for some reason, we tend to draw the line on moral things. We want to be morally like Jesus. We want to talk to people like Jesus. We want to have self-control. We want to pray like Jesus. That's all true. But Jesus said in the book of John, as the Father has sent me, so I now send you. When he sent out the 12, when he sent out the 70, when he gave the commission, he said, go out like I went out. And the way that Jesus went out was not just providing spiritual salvation, but also providing physical healing and deliverance for people. And it is tragic to me, I know I sound like a broken record, but it's the book of Acts. We have to talk about it. That folks want to come in and say, somewhere along the line, God decided no more of that. No more of that. You've got everything you need. I'm not doing another miracle for you. I'm not doing another healing for you. You should be able to do this on your own. As if miracles were training wheels that we needed. You see Peter is deliberately, and I think Luke is deliberately drawing out how Peter is imitating Christ as he does this. And the Lord intends us to do the same thing. What is the point of a miracle? What is the point of a sign or a wonder, as the Bible says? I like that word wonder. It's kind of all-inclusive. Anything that makes people wonder, what happened? <laughs> it falls under that category. Why does God do things like that? Because it can do in a moment what might take years otherwise to do in somebody's life. Why did God knock Saul down and blind him for three days? Because the Lord needed Saul now. I need you to get it together now because there's going to have to be a long period of you getting ready and I've got some Gentiles that need to hear Jesus. So eventually Saul was an honest scholar. He was a zealous man and he loved the Lord. He probably would have come around at some point. But the Lord said, I don't have time for that. Bam. A lot of times in our lives, there are things that God wants to teach us or show us. And we could learn them through studying the Bible. We could learn them through wise counsel. We could learn them through maturity. Sometimes God comes in and says, I want to teach you that I answer prayer now. Now you know it. Remember it and don't forget it. 
This is what signs, wonders, and miracles are for. Somebody who is so far from Jesus, the Lord uses something like that to bring them to the point of decision. And the book of Acts shows us that we ought to expect and pray for these things. Acts chapter 4, when the Sanhedrin first brought their threats against the church, remember? They had a prayer meeting. They said, Lord, give us boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders. They say, Lord, we're going to need miracles for this one. Is it appropriate to pray for that? Well, the church did. And the Lord liked that prayer so much, he shook the building. There was an earthquake. The Lord is like, yes, I like that. Pray more like that. That was awesome. Let's do it. The Lord loves it when his people are full of faith. But here's the thing. A lot of times we get like this guy, Aeneas, and I'm not blaming him. I'm blaming myself and maybe by extension you, but I'm not going to say that explicitly. <laughs> we or I can get like this, where when things are tough, it is easier to accept defeat and accept that this is the way things are and the way they're going to be when God intends us to have victory. Aeneas was bedridden for eight years. If he had been bedridden for nine years, that would have been a problem. Because at year eight, God was ready to heal him and bring him out of that bed. If he had said, oh, Peter, I just have learned to trust the Lord, that he's with me in my paralysis. And, you know, I don't need to be healed anymore. I've come to terms with that. Well, that sounds very spiritual, but that's really close to what Paul said is having a form of godliness, but denying its what? Power. Rise, take up your bed and walk. Turn to Luke chapter 18. Turn to Luke chapter 18. It's to your left a little ways. I've shared this story a lot because I think it is so key. And it's one that we ought to know very, very well. Luke chapter 18. I'm going to read the first eight verses. This is Jesus talking. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? What's the point of that parable? He told us right at the beginning that we ought always to pray and not lose heart. Unfortunately, we have a tendency to pray until we feel embarrassed for the Lord until we just can't take it anymore. You ever, you ever have somebody hold out hope to you and then they keep taking it away? You're like, I just can't do this anymore. So we begin to grasp for theological straws to make us feel better. There are victories that God wants us to have that we do not have because of our failure to pray. That is biblically indisputable. There are victories that God wants us to have that we do not have because of our failure to pray. Well, Tyler, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talked about how he prayed three times for God to take away his thorn in the flesh, and the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. And so Paul said, I will boast in my weakness. Of course, absolutely. I'm not saying that the Lord 
is going to do a miracle in every situation. That would not be biblical. But even that example shows that Paul had an expectation that God was going to take care of him. Didn't he? He kept coming. He kept praying until the Lord specifically said to his heart, that's enough, Paul. The sad truth of it is this. I think that the theology that says, well, God doesn't always heal everybody, comes more out of a rationalist worldview than it does from solid Bible study. We are so used to things being done scientifically and clinically and predictably that when God doesn't operate that way, we say, well, the only logical conclusion is that God's not doing this anymore. No, that is not the only logical conclusion. And here's the thing. We've said this before. Every one of you has a story of the Lord doing something miraculous in your life or in somebody you love's life or in somebody who you trust and respect. We've seen a miracle happen in this room right over here. Pre-arthritis, gone. More than a decade of pain in the back, gone. Because we were praying. Was it loud and flash bang boom and razzle dazzle? No, it was quiet. And all of a sudden, there was no pain anymore. We all have stories like that, yet for some reason, the devil convinces us, that's an exception. God, I don't want to put God in a box. Sometimes he does this, but we shouldn't expect that. That is not what the Bible shows us. The Bible tells us that you should be expectant that the living God is still working and still active. I've talked a million times, so I won't get too far into it. But, you know, we hedge our prayers, don't we? Dear Jesus, please heal Billy. But if you don't, that's okay. Lord, it's fine. You know, whatever. We know that you're still good. And then Billy goes, oh, maybe I shouldn't, I shouldn't be wanting this anymore then. Instead of saying, I wasn't healed. Okay, let's pray again. Let's pray again. Let's pray again. You know what? This is getting kind of embarrassing. No, Jesus told us we should always pray and not lose heart. Maybe there's something God wants us to learn in there. Maybe the timing isn't quite right, but we trust the Lord. We don't immediately go, ah, God's done with all that stuff. Alexander McLaren, who was certainly no, no charismatic, if you want to put it that way, but he says it this way. Oh, brethren, the Christian church does not half enough believe in the actual presence and operation of Jesus Christ here and now in and through all his servants. We are ready enough to believe that he worked where he was in the world long ago, that he's going to work when he comes back to the world at some far off future period. But do we believe that he is verily putting forth his power in no metaphor, but in simple reality at present and here and if he will through us? He says, you believe in the Jesus of the past, you believe in the Jesus of tomorrow, what about the Jesus of today? And I'm not telling you to put your faith in faith. Come on, faith. You're, you're like trying to start the, the fire like a boy scout, rubbing the stick into the other stick and looking for the smoke. And Come on, faith. Where's the smoke? Okay, the faith is coming. If we can get that faith big enough, then we're going to have... No, no, no. Come on. Not having faith in faith. How much faith did you need, Jesus said? Mustard seed. It's a little bit. A little mustard seed faith. Nor faith in certain words or certain prayers, right? Folks will tell you, if you pray this way, you're guaranteed... What is that? Like, like the Lord is, we're filing coupons with the Lord and like the, the, we'll accept that, that code if you put it in and life hacks for prayer and things like, what is that all about? No, and I'm certainly not telling you to have faith in me or in any other person who claims to have some special power from the Lord. I'm telling you to put your faith that Jesus is alive, that his character has not changed, that he still looks upon the multitudes with compassion and that he has not lost a bit of his power. And he's given it to you and to me. And you know what's really cool about this story? This will preach on its own. 
But the name Aeneas, you've heard of the epic poem, the Aeneid, right? Aeneas was the hero of Rome. He was the one that had, had first brought them when the city of Troy had fallen. He brought them over to the Italian peninsula and they began to build the cities. And so that's who this guy was named for. And there he is on his bed and it takes a little fisherman from Galilee showing up in the name of Jesus. And that's what enables him to walk. That's who the Lord is. There's no such thing as stuck with God. Well, we're just stuck. No, you're not. The Lord is the living God. Remember Jesus said he's not the God of the dead. He's God of the living. And a lot of times we can turn God into the God of all these wonderful things that happened back in the day. He's the God of Billy Graham. He's the God of D.L. Moody. He's the God of Charles Spurgeon. He's the God of Augustine and Martin Luther and whoever. He's also the God of you and me. The God of the living. The God of today. And Aeneas experienced that. And because of it, revival swept through the plain of Sharon. And all of them began to turn to the Lord. Isn't that great? Verse 36. Well, what do we need miracles for? For this. Hey, there's a new church I want to tell you about. Okay. Hey, Aeneas is walking after eight years. Okay, you've got my attention. How did that happen? Because of Jesus. That's how the Lord works. Verse 36. Now there was in Joppa, new city, a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was near, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. This is the first resurrection that we see after Jesus' ascension. And it is not the last. There's going to be another young man that Paul is going to raise from the dead later in this book. And there have been stories and testimonies throughout church history of the Lord doing this. I know people personally that prayed for a young baby down in Haiti that had been turned away from the medical tent because they said, ma'am, your baby is dead. There's nothing we can do for you. So they went out and prayed for her and the child began to breathe and came back to life. I know their names. I know these women. I know these people. It's not some story I read in a book somewhere. And they tell the story and they're like, it was the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. The Lord is still doing this kind of stuff. But Peter is called upon because there's a beloved Christian woman who died. Now Joppa was a coastal city. This is 12 miles from Lydda, so it would have been a day's journey to get there. And it's the site of modern day Jaffa with two Fs. So if you know where that is in Israel, it's built on the old city of Joppa. This was a highly prized seaport. This is a city that didn't get destroyed like Lydda because you wanted to use Joppa because you could bring your, your ships in there. This is where Jonah got on his fateful boat ride, you'll remember. <laughs> and what is cool about this is you can see the church is advancing farther and farther into Hellenist territory. Remember, this is outside of the Hebrews, as they were called, which is Jewish-cultured Jews. Hellenists were Greek-cultured Jews. They're advancing farther into that territory. They're even starting to edge into Gentile communities. And next week, we're going to see that all come to completion. And Peter is staying in Lydda. 
By the way, 1 Corinthians 9.5 tells us that Peter used to travel with his wife, so it's likely that she is with him here. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.5, Am I not allowed to take along a believing wife like Peter does? So, very interesting little detail there. He's staying for a long time, so Mrs. Peter is coming along with him. And he gets a message to come quickly to Joppa for Tabitha. Now, her name was Tabitha. That's the Aramaic name. Dorcas would have been the Greek name. Both names mean gazelle. And she was a woman, it says, full of love, full of charity. And that word for being full of acts of charity is eleamosune. It comes from the Greek word eleos, which means mercy, acts of mercy and charity. That's really what charity, the word, means. When we say charity, we think of like charitable giving or the Red Cross or the Salvation Army or something like that. And that's where that name came from, is that you were performing acts of mercy and charity. That's another one of those famous things that Christians started doing and then the culture picked up and then acted like that we were doing it wrong. It's, it happens pretty frequently, but we just do it for the sake of the Lord, not for glory and applause, right? That's what the Christians began to do is, well, these people need Jesus, but they also need food and they also need water. And I love them. I have so much mercy in my heart for them that we're going to start to do this. There is charity in my heart for that. A lot of that went back to William Booth and the Salvation Army. And Tabitha had that. She understood what charity was all about. You ever meet people that are for charitable organizations and even, dare I say it, Christian charitable organizations, and they're just angry people? <laughs> it's really strange. I, I used to go to a Christian school back in Virginia, and it was affiliated with Thomas Road Baptist Church, which is a huge church. So I played on the worship team for this school, so I got to meet a lot of these speakers coming in, and a lot of them came from these different organizations that helped out. And some of them were great, and some of them... You'd see them before service starts, and then you'd see them preach, and you'd be sitting there listening to them like, you big old hypocrite. <laughs> or you can detect a note of bitterness in their voice when they start to talk about the statistics of Christians who don't give and Christians who don't care, and this is the number of missionaries that are left, and, blah, 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 and they're sitting there like angry at you. You support my ministry or I hate you. <laughs> that's, that might be charity in the American sense. That's not charity in the biblical sense. Paul said, if I can speak with the tongues of men and angels, but I don't have love, I'm like a clanging cymbal. Yeah, it's noise, but it's annoying. It's not in harmony with what the Lord is trying to do. But Tabitha had the right attitude. And she was, biblically at least, in the book of Acts, the first in a long line of Christian women, probably a widow, we don't read of her husband here, Christian women who have children, get married, they come to the end of that road, maybe their husband passes away, and then devote themselves to the service of the church. That has been going on since the book of Acts. This is where the whole tradition of nuns in a lot of ways came up, came about. And there's a lot of stuff that goes along with that, but the idea on its basic level is very, very biblical. First Timothy chapter 5, Paul is giving Timothy instructions about how to know when to enroll a widow, which is when to bring her on and maybe support her financially. And th there was a, 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 so to speak, class of people in the church that were these widows that took care of needs like this. And she was making clothes, it seems, most of what she was doing. Very, very cool. Every, every church needs a few of these. Back home in Virginia, we had a few of these older women who were mostly widows, and they would pray during the second service at church every week, and it was, it was just wonderful. And they'd show up. They weren't getting paid. They'd show up during the week and volunteer and answer phones and fill out cards and file papers and just be there to talk to people and love on people. And the Lord has blessed the church with women like that. 
And it seems, as I said, that her main service was making clothes for the needy people. Nothing flashy, nothing pastoral. There's no authority attached to this. She was just making clothes for people. It was what she could do, and she did it, and she did it well. That's it. And this is the one that they're going to ask to raise from the dead. We're going to see that James the Apostle is going to be killed with the sword. And they're not going to pray for him to be raised from the dead. Not that they didn't love James, I'm sure. But when she died, they just couldn't handle it. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever felt that your contributions to the church are not worthwhile? When you see something flashy, or you see something big, or something very exciting, and you look at what you can bring to the table, and you just get depressed thinking about it. What can I do? I can sew. I can, I, I can sew. Look at Peter. He's over there raising lame people out of their bed. And Philip is, is being transported from one city to the other. And, and Stephen is testifying before the Sanhedrin and dying a glorious martyr's death. All I did was make some clothes and got sick and died. But that's not how the Lord looks at these things. You ever felt that you needed a position in the church to make a difference? That's dangerous. That way lies all kinds of trouble. Americans value celebrity, don't we? We like celebrities. Even in the church, let's not, let's not be hypocritical here. We love our celebrities. We love our pastor celebrities. We love it when there are Christian athletes, don't we? <gasps> He's a Christian, did you know that? Can he preach? Let's get him to come and teach at the conference. How cool is that? Oh, man, did you see that guy? He, he rushed for 150 yards. Yeah, you know, he's a Christian, right? So, I mean, I could do the same thing because I'm a Christian, too. We have a lot in common, me and him. We love our celebrities. We value big, don't we? We love big. Have you seen the size of that church? Have you seen the number of people that they've reached? Have you heard of the amount of money that they raised? We love big. We love expensive. We love talented and unfortunately, we value celebrity, we value big, we value expensive, we value talented. None of those things are wrong on their own. Is there anything wrong with having a big church? I sure hope not, because I'd very much like a big church. <laughs> I'd love this church to be full of people that have found Jesus. Like, oh no, we just, we just went into triple digits. We're just all downhill from here, and our spirituality is just going to drain out. No, of course, there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with being talented. You want the talented people in the right spot, right? You want people that are gifted in this way to be in the right place. And if somebody's gifted in a different way, find where they're gifted so that it just runs perfectly, right? And there's nothing wrong with celebrity either. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with being known for the Lord. George Whitfield couldn't even travel into a city without people banging down his door to get him to come out and try and preach, even when he was with the, sick with the illness that he was going to die from. And that was like the 1700s. They didn't have Twitter, but they knew who he was. Nothing wrong with celebrity. Jesus had a lot of celebrity, didn't he? But when you value those things the most, you're in some serious trouble. When you start to say, it is more important to have the most skilled guitar player on that stage rather than somebody who is righteous and maybe a little less talented. That was a battle I fought back in Virginia a lot. Because you get a lot of talented people showing up. Say, hey man, I want to play on the worship team. Great, we're having auditions next week. They come out. This guy gets on that guitar and he's just up and down the neck and you're just looking at him like, this guy knows what he's doing. He would make us sound so great, but then you get to talking to him. And you're like, hmm, I don't know about this guy. And then you check his Facebook page and, oh, there you go. That's it. That's all I needed to see. <laughs> Had a guy get very offended that I dared to check his Facebook page. Were you checking up on me? Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what I'm doing. And then I'd people come in and say, well, 
Isn't it more important that, that everything is good, that we can set the appropriate tone for the church to worship? And I said, not if we're doing it that way. Talented is not as important as righteous. Tabitha was making clothes. That's all she was doing. No one was going to remember her. And there are countless women and men just like that in the church that no one knows their names. Maybe even the church they go to, nobody knows their names. But the Lord knows. What does the Lord value? Faithfulness. Are you consistent? Do you keep going? I think it was Levi Lusco that called it long obedience in the same direction. You don't see a lot of that. I've been doing this for 12 years. I need a, a plaque on the wall or a chapel named after me or something. <laughs> don't they know how much I, I add to this church? Obedience, the Lord values. Do what I told you to do. Walk in obedience. Love. The amount of, I'm going to pick on sound guys for a minute. Because for some reason in the church, sound guys, for some reason, this just comes from doing worship ministry, that have no love for the Lord or the people that they're helping. Yelling at you, snapping at you, pulling you up in your ears while you're on stage trying to lead worship and saying, would you turn your tuner on? What's the matter with you? Dead serious. I was 14 years old. And I had this grown man in the soundboard of this school whispering things like that in my ear during the service. And then he would whine and gripe about how he's, I'm working 90 hours a week and nobody cares. People just come in and mess up and do whatever they want. And this is basically my stage. I ran every wire on this stage. I ran everything in the board back there. So don't tell me about stuff. Dead serious. And then we're going to go and we're going to, okay, let's go into uh, shout to the Lord now. <laughs> I speak with the tongue of men and angels. If I can mix a soundboard like anybody but I have not love. If I set up all the chairs every week, but I don't have love, if I wash the toilets, if I vacuum the floors, if I welcome people at the door, if I teach the kids, but I don't have love, you ever have a Sunday school teacher that didn't love you and you knew it? <laughs> yeah, you know, you know what I'm talking about. It wasn't all of them. Everybody has a story of that one great Sunday school teacher that changed their life and then that one awful Sunday school teacher that changed their life maybe in a different way. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 13. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. Capital D, day will disclose it. It will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Do you see that the Lord is testing the quality of the work? Not testing how much you did, Although I'm sure that's important too, but it's not what we're talking about today. Look at all this work I did. Yeah, but it's bales of hay. It's going to go up in smoke the minute the eyes of the Lord turn upon it. I feel like I hardly did anything. Yes, but it's gold. Would you rather have a barn full of straw or a little box full of gold? The Lord is more interested in the quality of what you've done rather than the quantity. And unskilled work done in the spirit is way more valuable than talented arrogance. Isn't that the truth? And let me ask you this question. Who do you value more anyway? If you've ever had some celebrity blow through the church, maybe just a local celebrity if in that church, everybody looks up to them and likes them and you have these encounters with them when they're not on, you know, or if you're, as I've done before, waiting tables for some of these famous people and they don't know that you know who they are. And they're like, oh, I see what you're really like. And then all of a sudden that person moves out of your life. Are you, you might be a little sad. Oh, they were such a great preacher. But if there's that one person that just loves you and doesn't do anything flashy, and it's every now and then comes up and gives you a hug and asks you how you're doing. There was a man named Larry Stewart back in Virginia, and he used to greet people at the door, and nobody told him to greet anybody at the door. 
He just stood there and opened it up every day. Good morning. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. Come on in. No one told him to do that. He just did it. And it's really tragic, but it's also a testimony to how awesome he was that when he passed away, that's when we all of a sudden needed a greeting ministry because there was nobody there greeting at the door. He would just grab people. Come on, let's go. Let's say hello to people at the door. He would do that to me. Come on, Tyler, let's go. And he was such a wonderful man of God, loved the Lord with all his heart. He passed away and we missed him so bad. There were so many people at his funeral. What did he do? He welcomed people at the door. So don't look at what you bring to the table and say, oh, it's not enough. It's not very big. It's not very exciting. We don't value things the same way the world does. We value them according to the Lord's values. When Tabitha passed on, the church wept for her. And they start to prepare her body for burial and they just couldn't do it. So they, let's leave her in the upper room. I hear Peter's and Lydda. Call Peter. See if he can do anything. What, you mean like raise her from the dead? I don't know. Just go get him. I can't bear to let her go. We are not to prize authority or power or numbers. We look for love. And that's how we judge what we're doing. So they call for Peter. The Bible makes clear that death is final. The Lord knows the number of your days. But he also shows us that God is willing to be persuaded sometimes. Isn't that amazing? Think of Lazarus, John chapter 11. Lazarus died. That was it. They, and they went through all the purification rituals. And they wrapped him up in the grave clothes. And they put him in there. And they rolled the stone. And they started to get over it. And then Jesus showed up and said, I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Remember the story of Hezekiah? Hezekiah gets sick, and the prophet comes and said, get your affairs in order, Hezekiah, because you're going to die. And Hezekiah says, turned his face to the wall, said, Lord, please, no, not yet. And before the prophet got out of the palace, the Lord said, go back and tell him he can have 15 more years. The Lord is somehow willing to be persuaded when it comes to things like that. And that's, that's just good to know. That's the character of the Lord, isn't it? Doesn't that say something about who God is? We think of the, of the Lord like the grim reaper sometimes. But the, that's not what it's like when it comes to Jesus. And Peter shows up here. He goes to the upper room. There she is. They're showing him the clothes. She knitted this for me. I had nothing. I believed in Jesus and my family turned me out. And I wasn't allowed to come back to the synagogue anymore. And then I, I, I just had this one shirt. And then she made this for me. And now she's gone. Can't you do something, Peter? And so Peter's up there and he sees her and they're weeping for her. And if you've ever seen videos on the news or online of when something tragic happens in that part of the world, it's a very loud, grieving mourning process. We have typically very quiet, very solemn mourning. That's our culture. There's nothing wrong with it. But over there, it's loud. They let it out. The, the ululating that happens, right? The very loud wailing and moaning. And Peter sends them all out and he prays. This is key. This teaches us a little something about miracles. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, Peter and the other apostles had been given authority to raise the dead. Right? Jesus said, go, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. But he proceeds with something like this in humility and in worship. He puts them out of the room, says, let me be alone with the Lord on this one. He never presumes on the Lord. And I think what you see here is that no two situations are alike. Even when Jesus healed people, there are sometimes he spit in the guy's face and said, now go wash it off. Somebody did that to you, you'd be like, how dare you? I'm just trying to be Christ-like. <laughs> sometimes he rubbed mud in people's faces. Sometimes he didn't even have to touch them. Sometimes they, he didn't even know they were being healed. No person is the same, and you could almost say no two miracles are the same. It's unique, and Peter knew that. 
Because he knew that he had no power to raise this woman from the dead. Jesus did. Even in the previous story, what did he say? I command you to get up because I'm the Apostle Peter. They're going to call me the first pope one day. And I have the authority to tell you to get. No, what did he say? Jesus Christ heals you. It's sort of like when Daniel was called in. I heard you can interpret dreams. Uh, I can't interpret anything. But the God that I serve can. Joseph said the same thing, right? In the same way, they raised up the, the lame man at the gate beautiful. Why are you looking at us as if we did this? My name is Simon. I'm a fisherman and some people call me Peter. But I know Jesus. Same thing here. He gets on his knees and he prays. Very similar story to Luke chapter 8 with Jairus' daughter, isn't it? You remember that story? The ruler of the synagogue sends for Jesus when he comes off the boat. You've got to help me. My daughter is at the door of death. They're walking. The crowds are jostling him. The woman with the issue of blood touches Jesus. He stops to minister to this woman. And then the man comes and tells the ruler, don't trouble the teacher anymore. Your daughter is dead. And Jesus said, no, no, no. Just, just have faith. Let's go. They get up there, and that situation, there are mourners. And again, Jesus sends them away until it's just him and his inner circle and the girl's parents. Very similar story here. In that story, Jesus told the little girl, little girl, arise, which in Aramaic was talithakum, right? Well, this woman's name is Tabitha, so it would have been Tabithakum, only one letter difference. Again, I think Luke is trying to draw out these similarities here. And in that story too, and this is where we're going to bring it home today, in that story of Jairus' daughter, it was too late when Jesus showed up. It was too late. Come heal my daughter. Your daughter is dead. Jesus was too late. Jesus does not know the meaning of too late. The Lord is never late. There is nothing in your life that is so dead or so far gone or so stuck that God cannot intervene. Tabitha was dead and had been dead. Lazarus was dead for days. Jairus' daughter was dead and they had already started the funeral. And Jesus shows up and says, not this time. He says, just have faith. Turn to Mark chapter 9. This is another one of my favorite stories. Mark chapter 9. Another story of Jesus showing up what seems to be too late. Mark chapter 9. I'm going to start at verse 14 and read down to verse 29. You know the story. When they came to the disciples, that's Jesus and Peter, James, and John, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And Jesus answered them, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. 
And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer and fasting. This is a familiar story for us. This guy was coming to Jesus for a torment that had been going on for a long time. The disciples could do nothing, and the scribes are telling him, there's no hope. They can't help you. Doesn't that describe a lot of our situations? You've got something you've been dealing with for a long time. It might not be physical. It could be emotional. It could be a relationship. It could be a fiscal business situation. It could be something to do with your house or your marriage. And you're just used to it by now. You've been dealing with it so long, you can't even remember what it's like when you weren't dealing with it. Maybe you've got scribes in your life telling you that you need to just stop hoping for a miracle, stop hoping for a change, because this is just the way things are. God doesn't do that kind of stuff anymore. The disciples of Jesus can't help you. Maybe if he was here, but he's not. They can't help you. Maybe you've even gone to other Christians who believe that God could help, but they, they were ineffective. I've tried. I've prayed. I've come to the Lord. I've fasted. I've done everything, and nothing's worked. But Jesus says, just have faith. If, if I can do anything, anything is possible for him who has faith. There is no relationship in your life that is so broken that God cannot break through. There is no financial hardship so desperate that God cannot provide. There is no sickness so nasty that God can't heal. And there is no crisis so far gone that God can't turn it around. Do you know that to be true? You have to know that. And the question of if God is going to change every situation is irrelevant right now because we know the answer to that question. The answer, though, is do you know the Lord? Do you know the character of the Lord? Do you know the power of the Lord? That's what should influence our prayers. Not coming in and saying, Lord, if you can do anything. We're coming in and say, Lord, you are risen. You are exalted at the right hand of the Father. You have all power. You healed all who came to you. You provide for every need. You're the one who walks with us through these things and delivers us out of the lion's den. Lord, I come to you in Jesus' name asking for help. The Bible makes abundantly clear there is suffering that we endure that God does not desire us to face. Is that every situation? No, but I'll bet there's a lot of them. Or we are going through things that either God said, you should have been done with that a long time ago, or the Lord's like, I'm ready to take that away. And we come to terms with it, and we don't seek the Lord. Ezekiel 22, verse 30. This is a very big example, so hopefully we can apply it down to our smaller examples. Ezekiel 22, verse 30. The Lord said to the prophet, I sought for a man among them, that's Israel, who should build up the wall and stand in the breach for me before, the land, before me for the land, that I should destroy it, but I found none. He's saying, I was about to bring judgment upon Jerusalem. I was about to exile the Jews out of the land. I was going to rock their history for the rest of time. But I was willing to wait. I was willing to delay. I was willing to let them repent again. And I sought for somebody to stand in the gap and pray for them. But there was nobody there. The Lord is saying, I was willing to delay the exile again if my people had repented. But there was nobody to pray. 
How many times in the Old Testament did God do that? The Lord said, judgment is coming. And they repented in sackcloth and ashes. And the Lord said, okay, I'm not going to judge you. Remember Nineveh? The Assyrians, the people that used to put hooks in people's noses and skin and drag them along and would behead and skin their victims. The Lord sends Jonah to those people and they repent. And the Lord says, okay, I'm not going to destroy you. You see why Jonah got ticked off? Lord, they deserve it. Yeah, but I'm full of mercy. I'm full of compassion. I look on them and I see the size of that city and I think, am I going to destroy all these people? The Lord desires to act on behalf of his people. You have his Holy Spirit within you. The same Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus to do all the things that he did. Let me ask you this question. Look at the situation in your life or your friend's life or your family's life or somebody you know. What would Jesus do if he was there? I'm talking in the flesh, looking you in the eyes. What would Jesus do? And then ask yourself the question, why won't he do that now? Because the Lord is still working. He's still alive. He has not diminished his influence. He has increased it by sending his spirit to the church and sending us out like he was sent out. We say, what would Jesus do? Again, morally, but it's beyond that too. You, you know the Lord. You know the Bible. You know the stories. You know the Psalms. You know the book of Acts and the Gospels. You know how Jesus worked when he talked to people. So the question for you is, what would Jesus do if he was in your life now? So go to the Lord and ask for that. If God is real and Jesus is on the throne and the Holy Spirit is within us, there is no such thing as too late. Well, there was a deadline and we went past it. God doesn't think that way. They were carrying the, the widow in the city of Nain. They were carrying her son to the grave. They had the pallbearers already had him. Jesus walks by, sees him and comes in and raises the kid from the dead right there on the spot. The funeral was over. They were going to the graveside service. And the Lord didn't see that as too late. The Lord doesn't know stuck. Oh, there's no getting out of this. I've been in this bed for eight years. Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Hey, make your bed. Get up. There is only victory. There's no stuck with Jesus. It's no too late. And whether God calms the waves or gives you strength to walk on the water, God never leaves us to face the world alone. Did you know that? In the Old Testament, the children of Israel prayed for deliverance. Sometimes the Lord sent the angel to sweep through the army and wipe out a whole bunch of them so they went home. Other times the Lord said, this is David. He's 14 years old and he's going to defeat Goliath. <laughs> I don't know about that, Lord. And uh, it's, it seems like we maybe could use one of those angel interventions right now. The Lord never leaves his people to face the world alone. So here's the point that we bring home from this. Do you have faith to pray? Let's, let's leave aside the spiritual gift side of that for a minute. Do you have faith to pray and seek the Lord? Peter walked into this room. There's a woman who is dead. Can you do anything for her, Peter? Now, a good pastor might have said, listen, she's with Jesus now. All the, all the sickness is gone. All the creaking joints are over. She's with her family again. She's seeing Jesus face to face. And, you know, we, death is, is just a passing thing for us. We don't grieve like the world grieves. Is that what Peter did? He said, leave me alone to pray for a few minutes. And I bet you Peter had that sermon in the, percolating in the back of his mind. But then what did he do? There's a corpse right there. And this wasn't like, the, like in the movies where the, the makeup is still perfect and the hair is perfectly combed, right? This body had been dead. And he begins to pray, Lord, look at these people's faith. 
is there anything you want me to do? And the Lord goes, yeah, I want you to raise Tabitha from the dead. You what? Do we do that? He said, I rose from the dead. Why can't I help somebody else rise from the dead? Well, yeah, Lord, I thought that was kind of a mir- uh, like a spiritual thing. Like, you know, as a metaphor, he goes, it is. It's also physical. I want you to go and raise Tabitha from the dead. Okay. All right. And he's like, um, Tabitha, rise up. She opens her eyes. How do you think Peter felt in that moment? Watching the color all of a sudden return to her face. Watching her take that breath. And he takes her by the hand and lifts her up. And she goes, who are you? I'm Peter. Oh, you're Peter. The Lord told me you'd be coming for me. He told me not to get too comfortable once I got up to heaven. He said, just hang on. And he said, okay, well, let's go see everybody. And then they hear two sets of footsteps coming down the stairs. What do you think that party was like? Well, God wouldn't do that for me. Why not? You're his kid. You're his child. You're his son. You're his daughter. Come to the Lord with a little audacity in your prayers. In the book of Hebrews, it says, let us come boldly before the throne of grace. Boldly. What is it like to talk to God boldly? James said it is the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man that avails much. It's not as if being enthusiastic is the secret key. He's just saying, come to Jesus like you believe he can do something. Not hedging your bets because you just couldn't take one more disappointment. There's no too late. There's no stuck with Jesus. And when God delivers you, when you walk out of the fire not even smelling like smoke, God will use that testimony to set other people free. Look at these testimonies. They sent revival throughout the plain of Sharon. Did you hear Aeneas is walking? No. Did you hear that Tabitha was dead and she's back from the dead now? No, she's not. That doesn't happen. It happened to her. What, what is this all about? Well, there's this man named Jesus. He was the son of God. Wasn't that that guy they crucified? Yes, but he rose from the dead too and revival sweeps through. That's what the Lord can do with your testimony. So if for no other reason, pray for the Lord's intervention in your life because your victory might mean victory for somebody else. If you can have enough faith without hearing a testimony, so to speak, then your testimony can build faith in somebody else and it becomes easier for them to have faith. And now somebody else sees two testimonies and it's even easier for them. And before long, you just, it's part of what we do. We believe the Lord answers our prayers. Have you seen the Lord answer your prayers before? Why wouldn't he do it again?